First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Brethren, let us hear God's holy word. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded or the faint-hearted, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that called you who also will do it. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of this precious and holy word to our hearts this evening. The Apostle Paul wrote the church at Thessalonica to encourage these new believers to persevere in the faith in spite of trials, hardship, and opposition. Uh, it is conjectured by many that this was among the first, if not the first, of Paul's epistles written to the various churches. He had founded this church and he had a deep and abiding love for them. <clears throat> now, they were clearly facing great trials, great suffering, much of that at the hand of their own kindred. Uh, Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. He says, You've become like the followers that were in Judea, who have suffered for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order... For us to get a hold of this, we have to realize that in those days, people didn't just walk an aisle, raise their hands in a meeting, uh, say, yes, I cast my vote for Jesus, and then were affirmed by somebody that they were Christians, and then they could go on about their life, show up in church once in a while if it was convenient for them, and still consider themselves believers. This is utterly unrealistic, and it definitely was not the world in which Paul lived, nor the, to which he wrote this epistle. These brothers were suffering because of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were following hard after the Lord Jesus. They had received the glorious gospel that Paul had preached unto them. And in their earnest desire to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, they had discovered that to be a Christian in that, in, in that world, and we will in this world as well, that if we desire with all of our hearts to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, were going to suffer. And they were suffering. 
They were suffering just like their other brethren in Christ. Paul also wrote to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. He reminds them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. You know that we're appointed to suffering if we are Christians. Now the specific context certainly points most directly to suffering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But surely the principles that we derive from this suffering also apply to the suffering that we experience in other forms. It isn't simply in persecutions. We're going to, through much affliction, through many trials, enter into the kingdom of God. So that includes not only the persecutions that we suffer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the temporal sufferings when we go through great tragedies, where we go through a chaotic or a, a chaotic experiences or great calamities. Paul had also said to them, <clears throat> For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass, and ye know. Part of apostolic instruction is that God's people are going to suffer. And it's sad that we live in a day that uh, you find people everywhere who seem to think that if they become Christians, that will solve all their problems. And that's the wrong reason to become a Christian. Brethren, I can say to you with all of my heart, I've known people that have become Christians and within a very short time, it seemed like their world utterly collapsed all around them. Certainly, the Lord does bring great blessings into our lives, but He brings, He has ordained, as we're going to see, trial, suffering, affliction, tribulation. God's people are going to suffer. And if we don't get a hold of that, uh, we are in store for some very unpleasant surprises and we will not react as God's children ought to. There is a way that God's children should respond in trials. In this great storm that has come through and done such devastation to our precious city, we see many that are suffering. We see many that are enduring great trials. And not, uh, not just those who don't go to church, but many of God's children, as we know in our own assembly, have lost all of their earthly belongings. We want to have a biblical understanding of what our response to these kinds of things should be. It is my hope that we'll get just a little glimmer of that this evening. Paul then was writing 
to encourage the Thessalonians to be faithful to Christ even in the midst of affliction. And we want to learn that lesson. This is something that all Christians need to be reminded of regularly. This brings us to consider Paul's exhortation as found in verse 18 of the passage that we have read this evening. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now this word is given to those who are enduring great suffering. And it is the very opposite of human nature. Our inclination when we suffer is to complain. Paul says, give thanks. Our nature when we uh, suffer is to get angry, to get frustrated. Paul says in everything, give thanks. Our nature when we're suffering is to become despondent, to, to feel despair, to feel hopeless. And yet Paul says in everything, give thanks. Thanks. <clears throat> if he had said, do your best to endure difficult trials and tribulations, hang in there, things will work out in the end, then many of us would agree with him. In fact, the world would have no problem with that. If the world says things like that, hang in there, baby, everything will work out all right. But Paul didn't say anything of, the, of that nature. He said, in everything, give thanks. Give thanks. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Paul actually tells these new believers to give thanks to God even in the midst of their suffering. Now, let's be honest. How is it possible to thank God for trials, for difficulties, for suffering? As I've already indicated, and as any of us know by experience, it doesn't come naturally to us. So we want to see why Paul would say such a thing, and may God grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is what we want to consider in the message which we've entitled, In Everything, Give Thanks. We want to consider these two things, just two things tonight. Well, I should say just two main heads, for good, a good deal of things to consider under them. The first is the meaning of Paul's perplexing exhortation. The meaning of Paul's perplexing exhortation. And then secondly, we want to consider the reason for Paul's perplexing exhortation. Now, <clears throat> beginning with verse 16, Paul gives us a triad of commands. He says, first, rejoice evermore. Secondly, pray without ceasing. And thirdly, in everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. And we want to take up this evening the last of these three. The first thing we want to think about as we take up this perplexing exhortation is the Christian's practice 
of giving thanks. The Christian's practice of giving thanks. Of all the people on earth, Christians should be those characterized by thanksgiving. It should be something by which we are known, not only among ourselves, but among those who are lost, those among whom we work, those in our family. Now, let me ask you tonight, would your family characterize you in whatever other ways they might characterize you, would they characterize you as a thankful person? They might say, well, he's a nice fellow. Or he's, he's a strict fellow. And they might say, well, he's an amusing fellow. Yeah, we like being around him. He's kind of funny. They might say, well, you know, he's, he's a very charitable fellow or a charitable woman. A number of things we might be known for. But does anybody know us as thankful people? There's a great hymn that uh, I hope to teach us soon called, Come, Ye Thankful People. Come. Some of you may know it. Come, ye thankful people. This is not something that's an option for Christians. And it is tragic that we are so very weak in it. This should be a clear, identifiable, and uh, obvious character of God's people. We should be thankful. Why? Well, first of all, because the one whom we serve and the one with whom we are in eternal union by the new birth was thankful. The Lord Jesus Christ was a thankful man. We don't have time to go through all of the passages that point to the fact that the Lord Jesus was thankful. But this was clearly His character all through His life. He gave thanks. Most notably, Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. It says, And He took the cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, meaning his disciples, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Brethren, with those whom he loved the dearest, in the moments before the greatest suffering any human being ever has suffered or ever will suffer with the knowledge that he was about to be cut off as an unclean thing before his father Jesus gave thanks Jesus gave thanks at the darkest hour or in the giving of the symbol of the darkest hour of his life Mark chapter 8. The Lord Jesus commanded the people to sit down on the ground and He took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break and gave to His disciples to set before them. That's interesting. Many of us sit down at dinner and we call on someone to, quote, bless the food. And very often someone will say, Lord, bless the food. But it's interesting how often we don't hear thanks for the food. Thanksgiving. We're asking the Lord to 
Do something wonderful for this food. Oh, Lord, make us strong with it. Give us strength to go in our journeys in this food. The Lord Jesus Christ sets an example for us. Certainly, He blessed the food. He could in a way that we never could. But we simply give thanks because He gave thanks to His Father for the food. It was meager. Here it was seven fishes, seven loaves and a few fishes. But in God's great mercy, he, he truly blessed that food. The Lord Jesus Christ gave thanks. I thank thee, Father. Thank you for these things. Jesus was a thankful man. From the food that his Father gave him to the most extraordinary task a father ever gave a son. To the extraordinary unthinkable suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ did on behalf of His people. He gave thanks. So Christ's people should give thanks. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 says unto us, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. Have you received Christ Jesus? This, of course, comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing the Word of God regarding the Lord Jesus and His work for His people. But as we receive Him, we receive Him through the power of the Holy Spirit who opens our hearts and brings us not only to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, but He brings us into spiritual union. If Jesus Christ was a thankful man, how can it be possible for us to be in union with Him and not be a thankful people? Paul writes, rooted and built up in Him. There is that glorious phrase that that Paul loves, and we should love it. In Him. In Christ. In Him. We're in Him by faith. We're in Him by a glorious spiritual union. It says, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Now notice, he doesn't say, well, giving thanks once in a while. Giving thanks uh, when things are going well. It says, the character of our lives, rooted, built up in Him, and established in the faith, is abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, overflowing. That's what the word means. We ought to be a people overflowing with thanksgiving. Second Corinthians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 14 says, Knowing that He which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. In other words, the knowledge of the gospel gives us a hope for the resurrection. And he says, for all things are for your sakes. 
That's an extraordinary statement. The Lord Jesus, the, all the things that He did were for His elect. And so Paul could say, all these things are for your sake. That the abundant grace, the overflowing, the abounding grace might, might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. What's Paul's assumption here? That if we've been raised up with the Lord Jesus Christ, and the day is coming when we will truly be presented with Him, if all that He has done is for our sakes, the abundant grace that God has lavished upon us through our beloved Savior will redound, will, will again abound to the glory of God. We ought to be a thankful people. We ought to be a, a gloriously thankful people for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And Paul goes on in that same passage to say, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, wait a minute. Well, that doesn't sound right to the, to the human ear, but it sounds right to the heart born of God's Spirit. When we're first introduced to it, it may seem a little unusual, but what he's saying is that God has done something for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that should bring us to a place of over or, or overflowing, a superabounding praise and thanksgiving and glory to God. And he says, knowing what we're going to have in Christ, knowing that we will be raised up with Him, knowing that He's going to present us and that all that He's done by His grace is for our sakes, then we don't faint. We don't give it up and collapse. Even though the outward man is perishing and enduring great trials, it isn't just talking about growing older. Of course, that's included. That's part of living in this life is dying slowly. That's why you have those wrinkles and your hair is falling out. And all of these things are simply pointing to the fact that you're dying. We're dying. But that doesn't make us faint. That shouldn't make us give up. Rather, our light affliction, and for Paul to say light affliction, knowing what he suffered, is remarkable. We're going to see that in just a few moments. But he says, Why? it's working for us far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Trials and tribulation are working for us. While we look not at the things which are seen, and in this context it would be the things we're suffering, but at the things which are not seen. In other words, the, the Christian has two sets of eyes, if I can say it that way. He has his human set of eyes by which he sees the phenomena taking place in this world. But by faith, he has eyes which see past 
the things that are going on around us to the hand behind them and realizes that even in these strokes of affliction and these sorrows and sufferings and difficulties that come into our lives, God in His mercy is working a great, a greater way to glory for us. Do you believe that? Or, or sufferings and difficulties and trials and aggravations something we just endure until we get to heaven? Or do we realize that in a certain way they're, they're, they're the handmaids of the Lord, that they're the tools of the Lord, they're the instruments of God to take our eyes off of these things themselves and put them upon Him. He says, we endure these things not looking at these things. We endure by looking past these things to the invisible things. The, eye, the things that our eyes cannot pick up. And realizing that the eternal things that God is doing are working in us and making us more like Christ. This isn't just a little Christian pat on the back. Hang in there, baby. This is the way of life for God's children. While we're perishing, we look past the things around us that are causing us to perish. We look past the stress and the overwhelming flood of things and we look at the things that are invisible. That incredible thing that Christ has done for us and knowing the day is coming when we will walk with Him in glory. And we grow. We progress in the inward man as the outward man is digressing. And that should be true of every single one of God's children. It ought to be what's true of you. That brings us to consider then the scope of thanksgiving. If, we're, if, if this is the, the, the practice of Christian thanksgiving and that this should be our character then how far does that go? Well, Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians, in everything. In everything. Well, now, it's easy to praise the Lord when we've been praying for someone in our family and the Lord converts them. It's easy to praise the Lord, isn't it? We've been praying for a particular job or we've been praying that the Lord would grant us some mercy, some kindness and favor. It's easy to praise the Lord when He brings that to pass. And we can thank Him for that, though tragically, very often we're not good at thanking the Lord for signal blessings. But I ask you, brethren, isn't this a perplexing statement for Paul to say in everything? Give thanks. Paul was a man who suffered greatly for the gospel. We are not only to thank God for the blessing of health and the prosperous times, but in times of trial, affliction, and loss. How easy is it, brethren, for us to thank the Lord for losing a close friend, losing in death, a loved one, losing just the fellowship of someone whom we have deeply loved and something has torn apart that fellowship and separated us. 
Can we say thank you, Father? What about when we lose our jobs, lose our health, lose our comforts? How many of us were thankful for uh, cold food, cold showers, hot nights, while there was no electricity? Can we thank the Lord for that? Jesus Himself had said of Paul, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He doesn't say, Now I'm going to show Paul all the glories of heaven. I'm going to save him and tell him what a great blessing it is to be a Christian. The Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, says, I'm going to tell him what great things he's going to have to suffer. And it's this Paul who was informed by the risen Christ that he was going to suffer, who's saying, in everything, give thanks. He says, rejoice evermore. You say, well, you know, he had such a close walk with the Lord. And back in those days, they had a a closer walk with the Lord than we do here today. Well, Brother Paul may have had visions of Christ that you and I do not have. But, brethren, his very experiences are, are kept for us right here in the pages of Scripture. And the truths of God and the glorious miracles of Christ are set before our very eyes to believe and to trust. Brethren, when Christ called Lazarus out of the grave, it was no more real than when you read it in John. The Word of God is eternal, infallible truth. And when we read that, brethren, it is as clear where we stand in graveside. But you see, let's, let's hear how Paul describes his own sufferings. Let's see if... Uh, we could even imagine this. How intense Paul's suffering was. It says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. He says, In stripes above measure. Now what that means is when he was scourged, he lost count of all the times his back had been lashed. In stripes above measure, in prison more frequent, in deaths oft, he faced death over and over and over again. He would come into a town and he would preach the glories of the gospel and the next thing he knew, there would be Jews coming against him, doing everything they could to kill him. Read the book of Acts. See how many times there were plots against his life. He says, Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Five times. A hundred and ninety-five stripes. His back 
could only have been a mass of scar tissue. I remember going to tell you something of a illustration that uh, may not seem like much, but I remember getting a, a whipping from a teacher in the fifth grade. He had a rule that anybody that hit the girls was going to get an immediate whipping. And this was before you could call the lawyers on teachers and all that kind of stuff. This was a big guy. And he had a great big old paddle made out of a one by four, and he'd drill holes in that thing, and he'd run string through all of those holes, so that when you met his paddle, you went away with a, an impression for some time. He also had another rule: that while he was giving you those ten strokes, if you let go of your ankles, he would have you bend over and hold your ankles. If you let go of your ankles, he would start over. Well, uh, sitting in class, uh, a, a friend of mine, a, a girl that I knew in, that, in those days, I say friend to what she did, <laughs> I don't know how much of a friend she was, but she made some uh, childish insult as children do in schools, and I turned around and I... I, I tapped her like that. I said, uh, you know, get out of here. And she looked up and she said, he hit me. And I looked at her dumbfounded. And the teacher said, out. And I, I didn't even have an opportunity to plead my cause. And now he took me into the, the men's room. And he said, bend over. Now, I knew his rule, and I also knew from the experiences of others that he hit really hard. So I twisted my fingers up in the bottom cuffs of my jeans in the hopes that no matter how hard it got, I wouldn't let go. And I look back now and realize that unfortunately this fellow probably uh, should have been investigated. I think he enjoyed this type of thing far too much. But he started off, the first one really stung. The second one was the kind that hurt down to about the back of your knees. And with each one, he increased how hard he hit. By the time it was up to about seven, the pain all the way up to the back of your neck and all the way down to your ankles, and it felt like fire. I mean, it felt like fire. And I was doing everything I could. I was turning purple in my, in my hands with my fingers knotted up at the bottom of my jeans. And his last two literally lifted me up off the ground. <clears throat> now, I had a little trouble going back in and sitting down. When I sat down, it was an experience that was... Uh, hard to forget, uh, the sensation of sitting down on something that had been pounded that well was uh, interesting, to say the least. And for several days after that, every time I sat down, I remembered 
uh, I had little string marks to remember uh, my so-called offense. Now, brethren, <clears throat> I was catching my breath with everything in me with just a little item like that. No big deal. That wasn't like being caned. Uh, there wasn't any blood. There was nothing. But, I mean, for days, it hurt. I cannot imagine 39 lashes that broke the skin five times, and Paul would go on. My little, my little introduction to a, a minor pain, which no doubt I deserved, regardless of what I did, to, to get at that particular time, was virtually nothing, but, but the pain lingered for several days. Brethren, what would it be like to have grown men ripping your back with whips that were embedded with little balls of metal, little bits of glass or stone? And they would come down and they would pull that back just as it would hit the flesh so that it would pull and take the skin with it. In stripes above measure, I've lost count. I can assure you, I was counting all ten of those blows. Paul lost count. Thrice was he beaten with rods. Once was I stoned, he says. Now, brother, can you imagine someone throwing rocks at you until they thought you were dead? Now, what kind of condition would you have to be in for them to have thrown rocks at you to the point that they figure that they have taken your life? Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Can you imagine spending a day and a night in the water knowing that any moment you might become shark food. He says, In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen. My own people wanted to kill me. Why? I told them of Christ. In perils by the heathen. When I started costing some of the uh, the Gentiles' money because I destroyed their idols by preaching the gospel. Well, they wanted to kill me too. In perils of the wilderness, in perils in the city, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things, that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. He says, in spite of all the things that have happened to me physically, there's something that actually wears on me a little harder than the rest. And that's the care of God's people. Read his letter to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. Let's be, who's bewitched you? To the Corinthians. Am I going to have to come and bring a rod? To the Philippians. You all need to get along and walk in unity. Day in, day out. Here was a man who preached 
and not only preached and, and had people argue with him and gainsay everything that he had, they literally took him and beat the skin off of his back. They stoned him and left him for dead. He went through sufferings that you and I cannot imagine. And yet he says, our light afflictions, our light afflictions, they're working for us a weight of glory. Can one be thankful for these things? He said, yes, they're working a weight of glory in me. I thank thee, O Lord. He's not thankful because something hurt. He's not thankful because a wicked thing has been done. But he's thankful that God has used it in him to form and fashion him more like Christ. <clears throat> the knowledge that God was sovereign over all events in his life gave him great strength. He said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. He doesn't say that those things are good in and of themselves. They are evils. But he says, but God works them for good. He uses these things in the life of His people. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. It was two things that made him thankful for everything. And it, the first one was the knowledge that God was sovereign, and the second is the glorious hope of the gospel. That's why he preached this gospel. It doesn't matter ultimately what happens to us in this life, because this isn't all there is to life. In the gospel, we are justified through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All our sins are washed away in sanctification we are made holy by the glorious work of the Holy Spirit. And in glorification, the final product of all of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we will be like Him and we will rule and reign with Him forever. So God uses these things to change us and to make us more like Him. <coughs> He had the knowledge that God was sovereign over all events of life and he had the glorious hope of the gospel. That's how we can give thanks. We know by the word of God that this is so. That's why Paul could write in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, <clears throat> There's also the imperative of giving thanks. <clears throat> We've looked at the uh, character of God's people in giving thanks, the practice of giving thanks. We've looked at the scope in everything. And then finally, the imperative of giving thanks. When Paul says, give thanks, he's not making a suggestion. He's not giving us an option. This is an imperative, which means it's a command. He calls on the Thessalonians and all his readers to give thanks at all times, in every situation. This is the command of God, brethren, for you and for me. 
At all times and in every condition, we must look to God, not only acknowledging that He is sovereign over every event of our lives, but thanking Him for what He has brought, both the glories of the blessings and the weight of glory that He works in us through suffering. Job understood this, though he wrestled and struggled with it, when he experienced the loss of all of his children and all of his wealth in one day. He said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that our response when trials fall in? Or is it, Oh man, not this again! I can't believe this! As I said last week. Brethren, are we in tune with our God and do we understand this enough well and clearly so that our hearts cry when the trials come is, Lord, what Thou will, not what I will. The Lord gives, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I didn't come into this life with anything. I won't go out of this life with anything other than Christ. And in Him I have all things. I have everlasting life. This is why Paul could write in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Notice, not just thanksgiving after God has answered the prayer, but as we come into the prayer thanking our God, making our requests, known to our Father. Well, we are running short of time, so let me simply say, and I will bring our second head to an end quickly this way. What is the reason for Paul's perplexing exhortation? Giving thanks. It's the will of God. He commands in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. I know people every day that are struggling to know the will of God. That's always a big and important subject with the Lord's people. Who do I marry? Where do I go to school? Should I take this job? All of these issues. But one thing we can be absolutely certain of. We are square in the middle of God's will when we're thanking Him for everything. We're right where He wants us when we're thanking Him for everything, in everything. Again, I'm not saying that the thing itself is a good thing. The thing itself may be painful. It may be an awful thing. It may be a, a terrifying thing. But the, God, but the God of heaven and earth, the God who loves His people, the God who gave His Son that they might have life, is going to work it to their good to make them more like the Lord Jesus. It's the will of God for us. Those who have been born of God's Holy Spirit want to do whatever God the Father wants them to do because they're alive in Christ and they're in union with Him. They have new hearts, new dispositions, new desires. And they can thank God for whatever He brings 
the disappointments. Yes, I'm not saying the disappointments come and, and we just go, oh, well, I'm thrilled beyond uh, belief. I'm, I'm filled with hilarity that I am now disappointed. And we're not saying that. What we're saying is that we look at that thing, we weigh it according to the Word of God, and we thank our God that in His wisdom He chose to bring it our way. Because it's going to work for us an eternal weight of glory. When you begin to lift weights, you can't start off with the greatest weight. You have to start with a lighter weight. And the only way to increase your strength is to add weight to it and to add weight to it. And as you add weight to it, there's a greater struggle you can feel that gravity more and there's greater pain. It is true in that sense. No pain, there is no gain. And as you continue to struggle with that weight, the more you struggle with that weight, the more painful those things often get, the stronger you're growing. That's working strength within you. And so our God does the same with us. We will be weaklings, children, and immature without the trials and the suffering that He sends us. And we need to thank Him for that. Otherwise, we would stay with our spiritual pacifiers. Let me list these things and then we'll close for this evening. Suffering is an instrument of learning for us. It says of our Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death and was heard in that He feared, though He were a son, yet learned, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. Learned He obedience by the things which he suffered. It doesn't mean that the Lord Jesus Christ was disobedient and he had to learn obedience. It doesn't mean it that way. What it means is he learned what it meant to obey his Father in whatever his Father commanded him and brought his way. He learned obedience in trials and suffering. And not the deity of him. The deity of him knew all things and did not have to be instructed. But the man, Christ Jesus was fully man. And he learned. He learned that it was painful to obey his Father. But he learned the joy of fellowshipping with his Father as he denied himself and took up the cross. You see, brethren, if tragedies don't come, if suffering doesn't come, we won't learn to trust our God as we ought. We will will not trust our God as we ought. Brethren, how many times have you seen later after the Lord brought a chastening or a scourging or a great trial into your life while it was agonizing oh, the, the glorious prayer that you poured out. Your heart, your soul, the fellowship you knew with your God, the strength you felt as He kept you. You wouldn't have known any other way. And the glory you gave Him as He brought you through and you realize He showed you 
all the dross that needed to be brought up by that furnace of affliction and needed to be slaked off by His mercy and grace. We praise Him. We thank Him. If tragedies and suffering don't come, we will not learn to pray as we ought. Not only will we not have the faith in our God as we should, we simply will not call out to Him as we ought. As I've just pointed out, unfortunately, in our flesh, when we start getting comfortable, we don't often pray with a genuine sincerity and fervency. Brethren, if tragedies and suffering don't come, we won't learn the same lessons that Christ learned. Remember, Jesus Christ learned, learned in His suffering. And if we are in union with Him, we want to learn what He learned. For us who are sinful, it means a painful dying to self. That's the hardest part. We don't want to die to ourselves. But we will learn that as we take up the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. If tragedies and suffering don't come, we won't learn to live in... Uh, we will learn to live in spiritual immaturity. We won't get off the bottle. We won't chew the meat. We'll stay babes. We'll make our little messes. We won't grow up. You fathers... I'm not talking about making things impossible for your sons. But if you're going to grow them, you need to give them work and you need to give them hard work. And then you need to put them in situations from time to time making hard decisions. If you do not, they will be crushed when they walk out into that world. I'm not saying being an evil taskmaster. Don't get that out of what I'm saying. There's a loving father you know that there are things that you're going to have to do to shape them and wake them up out of that immaturity. Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. And it is God's blessed sufferings that so very often make our stinking immaturities all come to the top. And we have to look at them and realize how ugly and unchristlike they are so that we might repent and grow out of them. It is a mercy from God to bring those things that grow us up, painful as they are to go through them. If tragedies and suffering don't come, we will learn to be satisfied with this world. We'll get comfortable. Jeshurun and waxed fat and kicked. They forgot their God. It is sad to say that as we still carry around the weakness of our flesh, that dear brethren, all of a sudden the world begins to look like a pretty good place until the Lord sends sufferings and reminds us that it is a sin-cursed earth and the day is coming when it will be annihilated in fire and there will be the fullness and the final consummation of a new heaven and a new earth. This is not our home. If tragedies and suffering do not come, we will not learn patience. We will not learn to wait on our God. If tragedies and suffering do not come, we will not learn to love the brethren. The Lord often puts us in situations where the, the most precious and encouraging help we get 
comes from a brother, a sister, or several of them. And oh, how we love them. For when, when our hands are, are hanging down and when our knees are feeble, the Lord sends a Titus to us with just a refreshing word. Brother, I love you. Brother, I've been praying for you. You look heavy. You don't have to tell me what's going on. Let's just pray. Father, bless my brother and encourage him with whatever he's carrying. If you've never had that experience, we need to do some growing up in here. Brethren, if we don't have sufferings and trials where we carry one another and encourage one another and weep with them that weep, we won't learn to love the brethren as we ought. Paul says, I know the God of all comfort. I know the God of all comfort. He's comforted me and now I comfort you. If you don't learn to suffer and find the God of comfort, you won't know how to tell someone else when they're going through their suffering. Brethren, you may rest assured that if you're going through that thing right now that is bringing you agony and making you grind your teeth before God and causing the tears to flow and causing your heart to cry out, Oh God, have mercy! Why this? You're in school. And the day is coming when you will find a dear brother or a dear sister And you will be able to look at them with confidence and say, Brother, I know that you are in a fiery furnace. But I also know that the God of all comfort will be your strength. And it won't be just a little pat on the back. It will be the character and testimony of your life. If tragedies... And sufferings don't come, the lost will think that they should become Christians in order to escape suffering. Instead of escaping the damnation of their sins. We don't become Christians so that things just get better. We become Christians so that we might know God, so that our sins may be washed away, and so that we might know Him for this life and all eternity. Whatever He brings, If tragedies and trials don't come, we will forget the nature of this world. We will forget that it is full of lies, deceit, perversions, and we'll be just like Lot. We'll vex our souls by getting as close to Sodom as we can. Finally, brethren, if tragedies and sorrows don't come, we won't long for heaven like we ought to. We may still want to go. Oh, when we feel the stripes and the pains and the the, the furnaces and afflictions of this world, it does set in our hearts a hunger to be in that place where we know the fullness of our Christ and to know the graduation of this school being out, being finished. We have a home. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. It's easy for us to look around and see this world and say, this is not too bad. Having a pretty good time. I'm sure enjoying it. And then the affliction comes and wakes us up. The death, the tragedy, the loss. And we realize, no, 
Now, this is not where I'm going to spend the rest of, of eternity. I long for that place where Christ is and to know Him. And that I know the failures of men and I know the failures of the flesh and I know the pain and agony of the things that face us here. I long for Christ and to be with Him. Brethren, our afflictions work a weight of glory. And it is only our immaturity that wants to dodge them. May God grant us the grace to look at them and to bless our God for them. And not only to bless Him, but to thank Him. It is the command of the Apostle and should be the identifiable characteristic of our lives. One of the identifiable characteristics. In everything, give thanks. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thou hast loved us and given Thyself for us. O Holy Father, we long to know Thee. We fear trial. We fear tribulation. We fear stress. We, uh, We feel despondent. We feel hopeless. We feel overwhelmed. Father, in those moments... All that we're feeling is our unbelief. Oh, work that eternal weight of glory in us and help us to look unto Thee. We thank Thee and bless Thee for those times when we do not suffer. But, oh, Holy Father, may we with the power of the Spirit and true hearts thank Thee for the trials that You send to us. May we learn to give Thee thanks in all things. In Jesus' holy name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.